0: That's a great question. I actually was like, should I talk about propofol? Should I not? So, one hundred percent. So I would say, in my time as an attending, I've used kind of the propofol washout really only a couple of times, but it works like magic.
1: Hi everyone and welcome to the PedsGrit podcast. My name is Zach Hodges. I'm a current pediatric ICU fellow at UT Southwestern in Dallas.
2: And I'm Alice Shanklin. I'm a critical care fellow at Children's National in Washington, DC. Alice,
1: will you remind our listeners what we do here at the Crit podcast?
2: Absolutely. Crit is a collaborative educational PICU podcast. We work with pediatric critical care educators around the world to create high-yield blog and podcast episodes on core PICU topics. So Zach, who are we talking with today?
1: So we're excited to have Dr. Gina Patel and Dr. Alyssa Stoner back with us on the podcast. Listeners, you might remember them from our series on intubation essentials that we published previously on our show. Dr. Alyssa Stoner is an assistant professor of pediatrics at the University of Missouri Kansas City School of Medicine and a practicing pediatric intensivist at Children's Mercy Kansas City.
2: Yes. And Gina Patel is a third-year PICU fellow at Children's Mercy in Kansas City, and she is going to be doing formal cardiac training as a cardiology fellow at Neemers Children's Hospital in Wilmington, Delaware next year. So this will be part one of our series on extubation readiness.
1: That's right. Thanks for listening, everyone. Let's get right to the content. Welcome back to the Script Podcast. I'm Zach Hodges. We are so excited to have Dr. Alyssa Stoner and Dr. Gina Patel back with us on the podcast. Before we get started on our topic of extubation readiness, Gina and Alyssa, will you just remind our listeners who you are and what you do?
0: Yeah, great. So I'm Alyssa Stoner. I'm one of the pediatric intensivists at Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City, Missouri. And I have one of my senior fellows with me, Gina Patel.
3: Hey, everyone. My name is Gina Patel, and I'm now a third-year critical care fellow at Children's Mercy Hospital, and yeah, excited to talk about extubation readiness with you guys today.
2: Fantastic. So let's start with a case scenario, and then Zach and I have a lot of questions for you two about your clinical approach. So we've got a 23-month-old girl who was intubated due to respiratory failure, secondary to renal failure, and an inability to tolerate her peritoneal dialysis from pulmonary edema. She has been intubated for 12 days and required both dexmedetomidine and fentanyl to facilitate mechanical ventilation. Over the past 48 hours, her peep has been weaned from 10 to 6. She's tolerated a spontaneous breathing trial this morning for 45 minutes without increased work of breathing, and she has been wakeful and shaking her head yes and no appropriate to questioning what an advanced 23 month old the RT is telling us that she's got a leak and your co-fellow just signed out that they stopped her sedation, extubated her at 4 45 PM to nasal cannula and she is doing well. Great. So I love to use a case scenario
0: to really bring home the points that we have for extubation readiness. And this particular case is something I experienced as a fellow. And so I just wanted to utilize this to kind of illustrate some points. And so we'll kind of go back to it throughout our discussion and highlight while all of these pieces were included in the case to make the discussion. so when I think about extubation readiness, I really use kind of a head to toe assessment and I cannot take full credit for this. So one of my great mentors, Jenna Miller, who is our fellow program director at Children's Mercy. Um, It really was the person who introduced me to this concept, and oftentimes I'll see stick figures drawn on the PICU windows trying to go through her little lecture, and so there's some additional pieces that we'll include in the blog post with that stick figure to kind of highlight the key points. So, When I think about extubation readiness, as I said, I start at the head and I just work my way down. And so that's kind of what we'll walk through today. So let's start at the head. So the first thing I think about is level of consciousness. So is the patient following commands? Is she alert? So our little patient, you know, is 23 months and it's amazing. Yes, a 23-month-old can follow commands. When I, I remember she was walking into the room. She was shaking her head yes to if you asked her to take her tube out. She really wanted to have her sippy cup. And so she would, like, be holding her sippy cup next to her breathing tube. There was no, there was no water or milk in it. It just was like her uh, security blanket, but she was ready and set to go. So think about your GCS, is it greater than eight? And then is there cough or gag present? And that becomes more pertinent in some of our patients who have experienced a TBI or have a history of an underlying neurologic disorder. And then think about their respiratory drive. Is it intact? You know, did we do their spontaneous respiratory trial and they didn't have any periods of apnea? And you'd be surprised. I feel like sometimes the little infants that you get ready to extubate, you put in a spontaneous breathing trial and then all of a sudden you're like, oh they decided not to breathe. Huh. Okay. Well, maybe they weren't quite ready. And so kind of making sure that's all appropriate. And then the next thing I think about is their sedation. So this young lady had a prolonged period of sedation on board. And so then I think about how do you go about making sure that they're ready to be extubated? So Gina, when you think about kiddos who are ready to be extubated, what is your kind of thoughts and approach when you're kind of coming to the bedside and they're still on their fentanyl and dexmedetomidine infusion or Dilaudid and Dexmed infusion.
3: Yeah. Speaking purely from a neuro standpoint, I double check how long they've been on their neurosedative infusions for. So typically if we're looking at more than five or six days, it's not something that I want to just immediately shut off um, and we might just want to wean it. Or they've been on it for a short period of time. Have we given adequate time for the neurosedatives to be worked out of the system and be appropriately metabolized so they're able to protect their airway and spontaneously breathing so I can ensure that even when I extubate them, they're going to continue to do so without ventilatory support. So those are some of the things that I'm thinking about. I'm also looking at the timing of the boluses that the bedside staff is having to give. So making sure that they didn't give a, a ton of PR and boluses right before I'm getting ready to extubate and then looking at the timing of long-acting neurosedatives like methadone, clonidine um, that are often initiated to help wean off of the neurosedative infusions.
0: Yeah, so we know that there's a bunch of data out there that supports that if you've been on neurosetatives for longer than five to seven days, you have increased risk for withdrawal and developing those types of symptoms. And so when you're thinking about that, there's a couple different practices to take into consideration. So oftentimes the day before extubation, people initiate enteral medication to help facilitate weaning off of those continuous neurosedatives. And so for example, if you're on dexmedetomidine and fentanyl, they might initiate methadone and clonidine and then drop the continuous neurosedatives in half or um, by 75% in order to kind of facilitate getting extubated. Another approach that is sometimes seen is just turning the medication's off and assessing the patient and determining what they need at the time. I tend to be a little bit more conservative in the fact that I really don't want my kiddos to be agitated as I'm getting them extubated. So I tend to leave dexmedetomidine on. So if it's less than five days, I tend to turn off the opioid medication if it's fentanyl, morphine, or dilated, And then I tend to drop the dexmedetomidine to half of what it is. So if it's they're at one, I drop it to 0.5. If they're at 0.8, I drop it to 0.4. And then later that day after they get extubated, and everything is hunky-dory, I just turn the dexmedetomidine off. So that's what I do if they had really short exposure to their um, neurosedatives. If they had a more prolonged exposure, there's a couple different strategies. Oftentimes, our kiddos have already been started on the enteral medications, but not a whole lot of weaning of their neurosedatives has happened. And so I may drop their opioid by 50% in the morning and then leave their dexmedetomidine kind of where it's at. And and then get them extubated from there and continue weaning their neurosedatives. It's really more of an art than a science in this kind of realm. And I don't think there is any wrong way to do it, just to be cognizant that having their neurosedatives on board is going to affect their respiratory drive. Because I will tell you, I have been a little bit, you know, fooled by some children perhaps that I think, oh yeah, this person's like awake, ready to go. You know, let's go ahead and pull the breathing tube. You pull the breathing tube and then they're a possum and don't breathe. And you're like, okay, do I put the breathing tube back in? Do I put him on some BiPAP? Do I give him some Narcan? <laughs> what do I, what's, the, what's the decision here? So one of the things that I have found, so we have been transitioning to utilizing Dilaudid a little bit more as a continuous neurosedative in our unit. It certainly does have a short-ish half-life, but it is certainly a longer half-life than fentanyl, much longer. Um, and so just being mindful of what neurosedative you're on. And so those are the kids who have fooled me that I've like been like, oh yeah, they're awake and they're ready to go. And then you pull the breathing tube out, you pull that stimulus out and they no longer have respiratory drive or it goes really down. Um, And so I have been known to give a dose of Narcan kind of in that setting to kind of get them through that hump and have them then be off their dilaudid. Those are typically the kids that are like really hard to sedate and go from being like, you know, completely comatose to like being like ready to rumble and like doing alligator rolls in the bed. And so that's kind of where there's a little bit more to um, play into.
2: Oh, Yeah. I want to ask if you guys ever do propofol washouts in those kids, the kids where you turn down the drip by 1% and they're completely awake. And then the argument of, okay, you put them on propofol for a night pre-extubation so you can just shut something off. But is that going to mask withdrawal? And so you shut off the propofol and they get like this sympathetic storm. And so. Yeah. Yeah,
0: And so I, that's a great question. I actually was like, should I talk about propofol? Should I not? So Mm -hmm. um, 100%. So I would say in my time as an attending, I've used kind of the propofol washout really only a couple of times. I I think our team does a really good job of helping getting these kids through that phase of really being agitated and wild and crazy. But it works like magic. So I do tend to extubate them a little bit deeper. So the nice thing about propofol is that you can really maintain spontaneously breathing while having pretty high level of sedation. And so you can turn it off and extubate. And the propofol is a pretty like on-off type of drug. So within then a couple of minutes, they're going to wake up. And so um, the experiences that I've had is the kiddo had been on like a pretty large dose of Dilaudid did the propofol washout, turned off the dilated overnight, kind of incrementally. So dropped it down by 50% as the propofol got on board. And then in the early morning hours, turned off the dilatted and let kind of everything wash out. And then the propofol I turned off, extubated him. He was still a little snoozy when we pulled the breathing tube and like he woke up and he was like a peach. And I was like, ooh, this is magical. I like it. And so I personally haven't seen kind of that like surge of sympathetics and kind of that withdrawal or agitation coming off the purple fall infusion, but we don't use it regularly. We do reach for it when we're kind of in that state, but it's not something that we utilize on an ongoing basis or, you know, it's a handful of times a year, I think, that we end up using it in that form.
3: I really say I do like it in our ENT patients quite a bit, like the laryngotracheal reconstruction patients that you don't really have a lot of room for the ET tube to move. You have to keep them pretty well sedated and even paralyzed. So I like to do a purple fall washout on those kids because they usually go back to the OR for extubation. And I found that those kids are not easy to wean the sedation because it's either awake or sedated. And so it's really nice to do a little propofol washout the night before, and then anesthesia can take them to the OR and ENT and anesthesia can extubate them and turn the propofol off. And it's pretty nice. And then if they do have withdrawal symptoms afterwards, you can always consider, you know, PRN or scheduled doses of opioids while you watch your WAT scores. But I agree with Alyssa that I haven't really seen much of an issue from an abstinence standpoint with the propofol.
1: For sure. So this is such an important part of the conversation. I want to reiterate some of these things and you let me know if I feel like I understand it. So if a patient has been under IV sedation for less than five days, we can probably just turn that off at the time of extubation and and all likelihood they won't withdraw. But as we get past six, seven, eight days, it becomes much more likely that they will have some evidence of withdrawal. So we need to be a little bit more clever about how we wean sedation prior to extubation. Um, something that I've seen is that when we are preparing to extubate the next day, we'll add on those enteral medications. But like you said earlier, Alyssa, the IV drugs won't get weaned very much. So when it comes to be the day of extubation, they're on maybe double the amount of yes. sedation. Do you have a, a typical structure that in the perfect world, say you add on the methadone at time zero, how do you like to wean the narcotics and wean the benzos after starting enteral meds?
0: Oh, you are like speaking to my heart. So um, that is like one of my biggest pet peeves is you start these enteral medications and then they don't get weaned. So what you do by not weaning the neurosedatives when you're initiating the enteral medications is you're actually just creating somebody who wants more opioid. And so it's really important in my opinion to be aggressive about weaning those drugs and kind of initiating them um, at the right time. And so keep it simple and just talk about an opioid. So if you're gonna initiate the methadone What I do is I take the conversion, so work with our pharmacist, make sure that we are not doing a significant wean by just initiating the methadone, maybe perhaps a little bit, but not too um, aggressive. And then um, for the first 24 hours, I order it as a Q6 medication. And after the first dose of methadone, I actually will wean the, so you give the first dose in and then at the next dose, you're going to drop your opioid by 50%. Um, And then as you give the next doses of methadone, you can continue weaning your opioid by another um, 50% and another 50%. So be very aggressive about weaning it off. And then over the next... 24 hours, I actually will drop the methadone dosing back to Q8 or to Q12, depending on um, the clinical situation. But methadone, as you know, has a fairly long half-life and so doesn't need to be dosed at Q6, but it allows for you to get to your steady state faster if you do that for the first 24 hours. Unfortunately, because we don't have a standard process in our institution, if I were to do that, oftentimes what happens is the methadone gets set, scheduled as Q6. And So I kind of don't always end up following that pattern, but in an ideal world, that would be how I would approach that situation.
2: Oh, yeah. You start methadone, and then is it 50% of the current dose? Like you land it like a plane almost? Yeah, yeah.
0: I just kind of keep chipping away and I say with every single dose, drop it by this much and just keep working it off until it's gone. And then if we are able to be completely off by the time we extubate, I make sure that then we have an IV PRN in the setting that we need a PRN to keep the patient safe, right? Because we want to make sure that the patient doesn't inadvertently lose their breathing tube at an inappropriate time.
1: For sure. And I've heard that for benzos and um, with Valium, maybe you can be a bit more aggressive with winning your IV sedation. Is that your practice as well?
0: Yeah, certainly if you have those added into the mix. So in our unit, we often use Entrel adivan as an adjunct and some people will then change that out for diazepam when they're weaning or they'll add it in. Everybody's practice is just a little bit different in our unit and we don't have a standardized process. Um, many other institutions, they have a pretty standard process like you're getting ready to extubate. Okay, let's start X, Y, and Z and we'll wean our neurosedatives in this fashion and move on our way and it's fairly standardized. And unfortunately, we don't kind have that in place yet but maybe one day
1: <laughs> for sure this does seem to be a, a good example of if a unit has a certain culture or a certain way of going about this this is, could be a some good low-hanging fruit to optimize patient care Mm-hmm.
3: yes I was going to add that um, something I always forget to think about is when you're putting these scheduled meds on like methadone and clonidine, always think about how you can kind of put them around the clock. So like a Q6 schedule alternating or Q8 schedule alternating so you, the patient can have something around the clock.
2: Oh, yeah. As opposed to giving the methadone and the clonidine at the same time. And yes, exactly. Taking their blood pressure. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Right
1: before extubation, right? Yes.
2: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> is nice. Yes, exactly. So we have talked about getting our patient awake enough for extubation. Yeah. Um, From a neuro perspective, is there anything else we should add before we move our way down?
0: I think the one other thing that we didn't talk about from a neuro standpoint, and this could be like a whole lecture in itself, is really the kids who have like DAI or have um, storming issues, because those can bring in like a whole nother challenge. But I think those kids really deserve kind of this idea of being able to do a trial of extubation, despite the fact that they may not be able to follow commands, because they may not be able to follow commands when you're getting ready to extubate them, but they may be able to protect their airway enough to be able to allow them to have their natural airway versus just going to a tracheostomy. So that may put a little bit of a kink into your plan, but just being aware of what their neurostatus will help you prepare for if they're going to fail extubation or not.
2: So these are your kids with a new neurologic injury or with delays at baseline to the, to the fact where they can't follow commands. Yep.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Peedscript. Please remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as a replacement for medical advice. The views expressed during this episode by hosts and our guests are their own and do not reflect the official position of their institutions. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at Pedscriptpodcasts at gmail.com. Check out Pedscript.com for detailed show notes and visit at CritPeds on Twitter and at Pedscript on Instagram for real-time show updates.